So I just found out that Alice Adkins is part of an art exhibit down at Christ Church Cathedral. Did you know that? You went, and the artist's name is Joe Akers. That's good. I'm, I'm glad that you are, you are that. So hello to the pajama people. Or as I've started adding, if your time zone is different to the wine and cheese people, or if you just started early, whatever. But I'm grateful to everybody that makes this happen. And you know, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So the title I have given this talk today is Learning to Pray the Four Immeasurables of Love. <clears throat> One of the questions I get most frequently when I speak outside of here or when somebody is new here and they hear me talking about uh, evolutionary cosmology, one of the first questions is, what about prayer? If there is no sky god up there, who do we pray to? And if God doesn't intervene at our request in our needs, then what is prayer all about? And so not just today, but going forward for at least the next five Sundays, we're going to be talking about the four immeasurables and prayer and praying the four immeasurables. I hope you don't know much about the four immeasurables. Maybe this will be the first time you will hear about them. Well, actually, you know about them. You just may not know that you know about them. All right, so we'll talk about that. So here's where I want to begin. I think it is an urgent task for the spiritual teachings of our time not only to understand the process of human development, which is one of the reasons that I have introduced so many different models for you to be aware of and to understand and to use maybe as a measuring stick for your own spiritual growth. But also, our spiritual teachings and practices have got to foster growth in these developmental areas. The suffering and unhappiness in our world, both as individuals and communities, depend on our awakening and on our own individual inner freedom. Actually, I think it's the desire for this awakening and freedom that has brought you here today, either consciously or unconsciously. I know that there is a profound capacity for kindness and wisdom in every person in this room, and our spiritual work involves coming to trust this and to feel that we can rely on it. Now, you know as well as I do, when you look around at what's going on in our world and our culture, we simply absolutely must find wiser ways to live. While it seems that many in our time and world are seeking a variety of ways to run away from life or to deceive or willingly be deceived, about what's going on, our spiritual intuition is that there is a wise and useful path through the chaos and the storms of our time. The good news, which is what the word gospel means, is that these ways exist. There are both teachings and methods, proven ways 
to experience and express the things that have been valued by the great living traditions all over the world. Peace, love, joy, patience, humility. Now, it should be obvious, especially in the face of this um, new strain of a coronavirus threat, uh, that there, there is an urgent need in our time to build a global community. There is an urgent need for us to learn how to live in mutual respect instead of mistrust. And I think it is so sad that nations, not just ours, but others, current partisan politics and nationalism and various religious internal bickering, rather than making a major contribution to this global community of trust and cooperation, are actually part of the problem. Now, you will not find a valid faith tradition that does not insist that the test of true spirituality is, a compa is compassion. They all insist that we cannot confine our sense and co of concern and care just for our own group. We have to have concern and care for others. And you know, without my enumerating them, the faults and excesses of religion, terrorists killing people in the name of God, the Roman Catholic Church turning a blind eye to sexual predators in the name of institutional security, various denominations splitting over matters of sexual identity in the name of rigid church law, and so on. In, in the Christian religion in the United States, Many religious leaders who call themselves evangelical Christians really have rhetoric that sounds more like secular politicians saying what appeals to their base in ways that really show no compassion for the greater good. Their gospel is that a correct stance on petty issues rather than on the inclusive teachings of Jesus or even the golden rule is actually the criterion for faith, and you know in your heart nothing could be further from the truth. I think it is ironic that very little is valued in American culture today, much more than self-made success. You know Joe. He was quite a success in life. He was a self-made man. Never has there been a greater myth Perhaps never has it been more dangerous to believe this than now, where, like it or not, we are bound more closely together than ever before. Suffering is no longer confined to someplace out there, off there. As we've just seen, when the markets crumble in China, stocks plummet around the world in a domino effect. No part of this globe is exempt from environmental disaster. The prefix pan in pandemic means everywhere. No exceptions. Some relatively small country that has the deadly combination of nuclear weapons and a crazy leader can cause disaster globally. Consequently, I say that it is imperative that we apply what we call the golden rule globally where we treat others as we would wish to be treated. 
As Karen Armstrong, originator of the Charter of Compassion says, if our religious and ethical traditions fail to address this challenge, they will fail the test of time. And I personally think that it will take those who proudly call themselves evangelical Christians who utter this political rhetoric generations to recover their credibility, if they ever will. So on Wednesday, March the, May the 20th at 6.30 in the evening, Michael Morewood will be returning to speak here. Those of you who heard him speak last June don't need uh, persuasion to hear him return again. If you don't know who Michael Morewood is, um, go to the Ordinary Life website and under resources there is an article called my encounter with Michael Morewood, and embedded in that article is a link where you can read or download the three interviews that I read uh, with Michael Morewood in December of 1998 that energized me as much as anything I have read or, or heard since my first encounter with Ilya Delio. And that's what led me to want to invite Michael Morewood um, here. Uh, Morewood is a former Roman Catholic priest. He was a very popular spiritual director in Australia, so popular, in fact, that many who heard him encouraged him to publish his teachings. And he did so, and after that was soon removed from the priesthood, which raises his credibility in my side. <laughs> Because what he taught did not conform to the Committee on Doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you might remember that at this time, Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict, was the head of the Committee on Doctrine for the Roman Catholic Church, and he was referred to as that Nazi Ratzinger. And if you haven't seen the two popes on, uh, is it Netflix? It's a good show. I mean, it's a good movie. It's a good movie to see and pretty, pretty historically accurate. So, you know, I'm committed to increasing religious and spiritual literacy, both for myself and in my teachings, and, and they are not the same. Religious literacy has to do with what knowledge and information people know about various religions, including the one they profess. Now, we live in a world, certainly a culture, where people are woefully, both religiously and spiritually, ill-informed. For example, many people cannot name the five largest religions. They cannot name the five pillars of Islam. They can't name the four noble truths of Buddhism. Many who profess to be Christians cannot name the four Gospels. Most people don't know any names of the apostles. Many people don't know the difference between an apostle and a disciple, and I'm sure that doesn't apply to anybody in here. <laughs> but religious literacy is about opening up your headspace with information and knowledge about these things. Spiritual literacy has to do with wisdom and, and understanding, with an awareness and growth in the values that unite us as humans, that connect us with others 
who live on this earth. And I'm thinking about how we experience and express peace, love, joy, hope, patience, humility, those kinds of things. So spiritual literacy is about opening up the heart space. Head space, heart space. Now, as a, as a spiritual teacher, I, f- I feel that one of my moral obligations is to work diligently on keeping my headspace open. Uh, I want to grow in knowledge and information about religion and religious matters. And a major way that I do this is by reading, by listening to podcasts, by listening to Audible instead of the radio when I'm driving around. Um, and then I pass this information on to you in here. Now, bring Michael Morewood up, not only because I hope you mark your calendars to come hear him, because he is one of the le- becoming one of the leading voices in what is labeled progressive Christianity in our time. That is, that is to say that he takes seriously the implications of evolutionary cosmology and how in the light of what we are learning from these new disciplines, we have to think, rethink everything in, in our theological doctrinal beliefs. And one of them is prayer. And he's written a book on prayer, and I'll talk to you more about that in, in a minute. Just this week, I read that researchers at MIT have detected a series of mysterious radio signals coming from distant space. Now, they first discovered these signals in 2007. These particular kind of radio waves last for only a thousandth of a second. Now, what's different about these particularly recently discovered signals is that they're coming in a regular pattern. There was a burst of two each hour for four days, then silence for 12 days, and then this pattern is repeated over and over and over. Now, the scientists say that it is not likely that these signals are coming from intelligent beings, but rather that they are more likely coming from a neutron star. A neutron star is one that is the collapsed star, a core of, of a giant star. And that this neutron star is orbiting a larger object such as a black hole. And that periodically that black hole is blocking the signals. And when it comes back into the space where the signals can reach where we are, then we pick them up again. That makes sense? That's not what's fascinating. What's fascinating to me, actually staggering, is that they have figured out that these radio pulses are coming from a galaxy. Are you sitting down? That is 500 million light years away. You can't get your head around that. And an equally important, if not more important, corollary is that there are beings who are able to figure this out. (laughs) So that when you hear someone say that the human species is the universe developing the capacity to be self-reflective, That's the responsible part that we play. 
So two of the new guiding principles that have come out of this new understanding of the cosmos and of ourselves are what I have called the end of cosmological dualism and the end of individual salvation. I know you've heard these before and, and you're going to keep hearing them again. Why? Because we as individuals live in a culture where the opposite of these things have become our default way of thinking. We live in a very dualistic culture in all kinds of ways, and we live in one that is individually focused. Um, I, as you know, do all the cooking in, in our family, and uh, I spend a lot of time in the kitchen, so I, our kitchen faces the street. And I see these kids, because we live in an area where there's a school, I see these kids walking up and down our house all the time, like this, in groups. They're not by themselves. They're in groups like this. Now, um, these way, ways of thinking uh, at one time uh, were inevitable, maybe even useful. But they have led to uh, two other things that I've also mentioned and I want to use as something of a, as a roadmap for a while. The embracing of dualism and separate self has led to a more and more chaotic and dysfunctional, more chaotic world and more dysfunctional individuals. And what I mean by that primarily is that we've become ignorant of each other. We've become ignorant of ourselves. I don't mean stupid. We're not stupid. We're just unaware, um, not paying attention, insensitive, unaware, lacking compassion. And the two things that I have mentioned is <clears throat> that whole persons cannot be nurtured in a context of social chaos and order cannot be constructed by dysfunctional individuals. Now, whose responsibility is it to fix this? There's an English writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He wrote some wonderful lines. One of them I especially love is, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. You know, our moral obligation to be happy is fulfilled when we develop hearts as light as a feather. He also wrote, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. <laughs> now, I've taken that out of context. He didn't mean that. It isn't true. I mean, he didn't mean that. Many, many individuals, many groups have wonderfully exemplified what it means to be Christian. What Chesterton meant was that the country that calls itself a Christian nation has never seriously attempted to live the vision given to us in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. You think back over recent years how many battles have been started, especially in the South, over desires to put plaques on buildings of the Ten Commandments. You know what I'm talking about? You've never heard one arguing to put the Sermon on the Mount there. What Jesus taught is that what is wrong with the world lies in not paying attention to who we are. And further, as firmly seen in what happened after his death, when we do pay attention and live out our true identity, 
it, it makes a difference. There are many pictures of Chesterton on the internet. This is the one that appealed to me. He died um, the year before I was born. He had a job working for the London Daily News. He was a man of great intellect. George Bernard Shaw said of um, him, he was a man of colossal genius. And those of you who like Father Brown on Channel 8 should thank him because he invented the character. And the uh, London Daily News gave him a task of writing an essay that would respond to the question, what's wrong with the world? His essay consisted of two words. I am. The good news is that we can all be what's right with the world. It will take some growth in religious and spiritual growth, and it will take it will take a daily practice. Sorry. There just ain't no way around this. You're not going to learn to play the piano without practicing. Now, I want to take the time, it won't take that long, to read you the complete text of the Charter for Compassion. Uh, part of the reason is that this past week and this week is a week of the Charter for Compassion around the country, around the world. This document and the organization and groups that have come from it was initiated by Karen Armstrong and finalized in 2009. I think it was in 2009 that I signed the Charter of Compassion. The reason for that was that uh, being connected with the Jesus Seminar, having met Karen Armstrong, right at the time this was coming out, I, I had a connection and motivation to do that. So I want to I read to you. Uh, won't take long. This is how we can answer the question, what's right with the world? The principle of compassion lies at the heart of all religious, ethical, and spiritual traditions, calling us always to treat others as we wish to be treated. Compassion impels us to work tirelessly to alleviate the suffering of our fellow creatures, to dethrone ourselves from the center of the world and put another there and to honor the inviolable sanctity of every single human being, treating everybody without exception with absolute justice, equity, and respect. It is also necessary in both public and private life to refrain, refrain consistently and empathetically from inflicting pain, to act or speak violently out of spite, chauvinism, or self-interest, to impoverish, exploit, or deny basic rights to anybody, and to incite hatred by denigrating others, even our enemies, is a denial of our common humanity. We acknowledge that we fail to live compassionately and that some have even increased the sum of human misery in the name of religion. We therefore call upon all men and women to restore compassion to the center of morality and religion, to return to the ancient principle that any interpretation of Scripture that breeds violence, hatred, or disdain is illegitimate, to ensure that youth are given accurate and respectful information about other traditions, religions, 
and cultures, to encourage a positive appreciation of cultural and religious diversity, to cultivate an informed empathy with the suffering of all human beings, even those regarded as enemies. We urgently need to make compassion a clear, luminous, and dynamic force in our polarized world. Rooted in a principled determination to transcend selfishness, compassion can break down political, dogmatic, ideological, and religious boundaries. Born of our deep interdependence, compassion is essential to human relationships and to a fulfilled humanity. It is the path to enlightenment and indispensable to the creation of a just economy and peaceful global community. Last paragraph, again. Compassion is the path to enlightenment and indispensable to the creation of a just economy and peaceful global community. How do you think we're doing with this? Thought maybe we had that knocked. So let's talk about compassion today and next week. One definition of compassion is that it means to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, to feel their pain, um, to ask the question that Ruby Sales asked, where do you hurt? This um, com charter of compassion is uh, what we call, could be summarized in what we call the, the golden rule. I'm amazed at how many times when I talk with somebody or some group about the golden rule, almost inevitably someone will say, oh, yeah, I know the golden rule, the one who has the gold rules. <laughs> and it's said with this deep sense of resignation, and, and it need not be that way. Now, as far as we know, and we'll talk about the origins in some other places, in particular their influence on Jesus next week, but as far as we know, one of the first persons to formulate the golden rule was Confucius, sometime around 500 B.C., give or take. And, and the way he put it was, never do to others what you would not like them to do to you. And again, practicing, the spiritual practice is not just sitting in your room meditating and reading. Spiritual practice also involves ritual and doing. So I would say that this kind of teaching can only be understood by someone who practices it. Now, I've been fortunate in my life to meet a number of holy people. Um, prior to my connection with Richard Rohr, and I've been careful about how I want to say this, um, Prior to connecting with Rohr, I would say few of those people were from the Christian community. I met a lot of good people from the Christian community, don't get me wrong, but not people that I would classify as holy people. I met people like that before Richard Rohr, some of whom I'll talk about in, in a minute. Now, since then, of course, I have met many holy people. One of them is um, Jim Finley. I would put James Finley in that group. It was from him that I heard this line, we know people are saints, not because of what we feel about them, but because of how we feel about ourselves when we're in their presence. 
They don't call attention to themselves. Thomas Merton wrote, The saints are what they are, not because their sanctity makes them admirable to others, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everybody else. Now, how do we live into this kind of life? That is, if we're really serious about things like faith commitment, transformation, following Jesus, or just being in the group of those who can say without pride or boasting, I am part of what is right with the world. How, how can we do this? By the way, that's a great elevator speech. I'm part of what's right with the world. And it will open the door to give you an uh, opportunity to talk about things other than politics. Although it will affect politics, it will affect everything. So how do we live into this kind of life? And my answer is we do it by learning to pray the four immeasurables. The four immeasurables of love. As again, I say you know these, but um, I hope you're curious. What are the four immeasurables of love? So I got these from the Buddhist tradition. Actually, I got them from a man named Jack Cornfield. I met Jack Cornfield in 1973 at the same time that I met Thich Nhat Hanh. Jack Cornfield is um, a little guy. He is a um, clinical psychologist, and he is a, one of the first Buddhist monks in the United States. And he speaks with such a soft, loving voice about what he teaches. Now, I knew about the four noble truths of Buddhism just like you do. There's suffering. There's a cause of suffering. There's a way out of suffering. There's the Eightfold Noble Path. You all know that. But I had never until Cornfield heard of the four immeasurables of love in the way that he put them. And he put them in the meditation practice that he taught us. They are a special form, according to Cornfield, of a med meditation developed by the Buddha, and they're designed to enhance our natural impulse to empathy and, and compassion. Now, the Buddha defined love as that huge, expansive, immeasurable, that's why these are called the four immeasurables, uh, feeling that knows no hatred. And he would, the Buddha would, direct this to the far corners of the world, not omitting a single creature. And Vipassana meditation, those of you who do that or know about it, know that that's how Vipassana meditation ends, by extending these four immeasurables out. So we're going to be talking about this for a while. So the first thing the Buddha would do and what he taught was that he would Evoke loving kindness, and uh, loving kindness is, fr is friendship. Friendship, you know how you treat friends. So he would send loving kindness out into the world. And next he would meditate on compassion, and the compassion would be his desire that all beings be free of suffering and pain. And next he would bring to his mind the pure joy that he himself had experience in his own liberation 
And he would desire to give that joy to other people or wish that other people had the joy that I have. There's a line in, in uh, the writings of St. Paul in the Christian scriptures that said, we comfort with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. And then the, the fourth immeasurable uh, is a freedom from personal attachment and partiality, vowing to love all sentient beings with even-mindedness or equanimity. Over the time, the Buddha found that his mind broke free from the prison of selfishness and he developed this ability to live without hate and live without pettiness. Uh, he developed the ability to live with compassion. One of the books I have about this said that the Buddha achieved this. Uh, I'll give you the quote exactly. Over time, by dint of disciplined practice. Just thought I'd bring that up again. <laughs> Karen Armstrong's crucial insight uh, in, the, in her writings about the Charter of Compassion, was that uh, the Buddha was desiring to live morally for other people. It was not enough simply to have a religious experience. However, my experience is that when you live like this, it is a religious experience. So I want us to spend some time going forward, focusing on learning to pray these four immeasurables. And I want to begin today with loving kindness. Loving kindness involves learning to see the inner nobility and beauty of all other human beings. Now, I can tell you as a personal counselor, that here's one of the places where Carl Jung's work has been so indispensable for me. Because it is so difficult for so many people to believe in their own goodness. I hear it. I've heard it. I'll continue to hear it. If you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And Jung or Jesus would say, or a saint, no, if I really knew you, I would like you even more. We have these beliefs and fears about ourselves, and we take them as the truth. And we have a tendency to believe those more than we believe our inner nobility. You wrote, curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously than they hide the dark sides. It's more disrupting to find you have a profound nobility of character than to find out you're a bum. I call these bad habits of the mind that, uh, that uh, we have developed them over a period of time and to put them aside, we're really uncomfortable with them. But if we um, fully acknowledge our true identity, man, that could lead to some radical changes. It, it could be something huge for us. We might have to leave the comfort of some tribal loyalty. But there is, there is this part down deep inside of every one of us that knows we are not damaged goods, no matter what we experienced. We're not worthless. We're not no good. We're not bums, to use Jung's language. 
there, <clears throat> there is a temple in Thailand, which I've only heard about and seen pictures of, where uh, there stood at one time a huge, enormous clay statue of the Buddha. It was not the most beautiful of Buddhist art. It had been cared for, though, for over 500 years, and it had become revered just for its long, uh, long life, its longevity. And uh, rain and sun and change in regimes and wars had raged, but this statue of the Buddha remained as it was. But the, the monks who cared for the statue noticed that it was beginning to show wear and that it was going to need to be repaired. It would need paint and more clay or plaster or whatever. And one day in the process of deciding to do this, one of the monks took a flashlight and peered into one of the cracks. And what he saw coming back was a flash of brilliant gold. Because inside this plain old statue, the monks discovered one of the largest, most luminous gold statues of Buddha ever created. And now uncovered this golden Buddha draws thousands of pilgrims every year. Now the theory behind it is that to protect the statue from damage in times of conflict, earlier monks had covered it with plaster and clay. Now, I don't know anyone who hasn't encountered situations early in life that caused us to cover up our gold. And just like the generations of Buddhists forgot about the true nature of the golden Buddha, so we forget our true nature. But when we bring out what Matthew Fox calls our original blessing, then we can pass this on to others. That's true of you. It's true of the people sitting on either side of you, to the front and behind you. It's true of all of us. Now, there is no spiritual teacher who can tell you how to feel love. You've got to find your own way to see the gold in others. I personally would be forever grateful that when I came to Houston in 1966 and, and entered clinical training, that the first textbook assigned for us to read was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Since then, I have twice been privileged to study with the man to whom Viktor Frankl physically gave his legacy to be a teacher. Um, that, that was such a gift to be able to do that. If you've not read this book, you need to read this book. Um, Frankel was a physician in um, Vienna. He lived as families did then. Uh, he, he and his wife lived with his parents in kind of what we would call a brownstone. Uh, the Germans had begun to begin occupying Austria. Uh, he had a chance to come to the United States with his pregnant wife and to escape, but he honored the commandment about honoring father and mother and decided not to leave. And he and his wife and his parents and his brother were captured. Um, before being captured, because he could see this coming, he asked his wife to sew the manuscript of this book into the lining of his coat because he was fearful that it would get destroyed. It did get destroyed, but he recreated it. So Frankel and his family, entire family were taken by the Nazis 
They were put in a prison camp. He uh, was, he, they were separated. They kept him separate from his family because being a doctor, they thought he could be useful to them. And he did not know until his liberation three and a half years later that the day after they were separated, his mother, father, pregnant wife, and brother were all exterminated. In spite of that, he found a path to healing. And in this book, he wrote, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. One of the things that having faith in Jesus has come to mean to me is I have the faith that Jesus would not have taught what he did about love and inclusion and forgiveness if he did not believe that it was a possibility. And I know that it is my personal belief and experience that we can recognize and let go of unhealthy patterns that create suffering for ourselves and others if we can learn about and practice healthy patterns and put those in place. Now, if you read the Morewood book on prayer, and I'll have more to say about this next week, you'll see that this is one of the things he means about prayer. Prayer is... Uh, a form of prayer is when we encounter another human being and honor their dignity. That's a form of praying. <clears throat> Most of you have been to the symphony, I take it. I take it you've been to the symphony. You go to the symphony, and, and uh, one of the instruments that I like, and I would pick this as my own, is a timpani player. And you might notice the timpani player. When the timpani player plays and, and plays this really robust piece, at the end of which he'll take his hands and put them all the drums, even drums that he didn't hit. You notice that. Because he knows that even though a drum head had not been struck during the piece, it picks up the vibrations of the drum next to it, and it will continue to sound unless he puts his hands on it. Now, in psychology, we call this mood contagion. And you've experienced this. If an angry, frightened person comes into your space, you sense it. When a joyful, happy person comes into your space, you sense it. When we see the gold in others, that resonates, and they pick up on it. Now, as I understand it, the human handshake, which we're being encouraged not to do, but do this, or the fist bump. I think do this, but I got a better idea. We do the handshake because it would prove we didn't have a weapon in our hand, all right? That's why we do that. The greeting among Buddhists and Hindus is that they put their hands together and they bow, and that they make the saying, um, and the saying means, um, I see that which is holy in you, and I honor that. <clears throat> By the way, this is a very selfish way to live. Good selfish way. 
When we bring the ability to see a person for who they truly are, we open up the channel to our own goodness. You can't give what you don't have. I believe this is how Jesus healed people. Jesus said, some blind person, some lame person, somebody who'd been excommunicated from the community for whatever reason, Jesus would say, I see what you think defines you as a human being. And I see past that to your true identity. And if you see what I see in you, and you have faith in that, you will be the wholeness that you are. Wholeness is not dependent on physical condition. So this week, after you have done your morning practice, whatever it is, however long it is, just as long as it opens your heart, I want to suggest that you make a commitment during the day for, let's say, three days this week, that you carry this intention throughout the day and say to yourself, when you encounter three people, I see the sacred in you. Now, I don't advise you to say that out loud. <laughs> if the situation is safe, you could do that. But try it. And notice what it does for you. How it changes your interaction with that person. Now, if you want to up it to more days and more people, then do so. I think it's helpful to keep a journal about these things. Um, I'll just share your experience of doing this this week. It, I, 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 as all the clergy did, pulled sanctuary duty here on Ash Wednesday from 1.30 to 3.30. You know what that means? So I sat alone in the sanctuary behind the altar rail waiting for anybody who would come in for the imposition of ashes. And um, everybody who came in, I, I did this. Sometimes I did it out loud. I love doing it. To, to, to say to people that I, I see the sacred in you. It's really, really wonderful to have the little bitty children, parents who bring children into the altar rail to be blessed. And you know, the normal blessing is um, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Remember, you're mortal. You're going to die. <laughs> have a nice day. <laughs> so I say to little children, God loves you now. God will love you forever. We've got to change our theology. We've got to change our language. You get that, don't you? God loves you now. God will love you forever. Your goal, you got that gold in you, and you can go and give that to other people. Now, you're going to find certain people this is difficult to do to, <laughs> and others that it's impossible. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. This is, look, if this is a piano lesson, this is twinkle, twinkle, little star we're learning today. <laughs> But the goal is to see as many beings as you can with loving kindness and compassion. Now, Jack Cornfield, who I hope to share more with you about as we go forward, he taught this in his Vipassana meditation training. And he taught this very stuff. I, these are my words. I'm just using material that I got in 1973. It's a long time ago. But I remember Jack saying one, one time at the end of a long group training, he said, um, 
leave here and go through the day as if you were the Dalai Lama undercover. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step. I'll see you here next week. Thank you. <clears throat>